Hello and welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is the second part of our event with the McCaffey School of Theology. If you'd like to know more about Brew Theology, you can find us at brewtheology.org, at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram, and at brew underscore theology on Twitter. For the second part of this event, we're going to be interviewing the Reverend Dr. Robert Nash, Jr. Reverend Dr. Nash serves as the Associate Dean for the Doctor of Ministry Program and is the Arnold Mann Thomason Professor of Missions and World Religions at McAfee School of Theology. He received his Ph.D. degree in Church History and his MDiv degree from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Prior to coming to McAfee, Dr. Nash served as the Global Missions Coordinator at the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and as a professor in the religion departments at both Shorter College in Rome, Georgia, and at Judson College in Marion, Alabama. An author of three books and numerous articles, Dr. Nash has devoted his research and writing to the intersection between religious faith and culture, paying particular attention to what happens to religions as they move from one cultural context to another. This research interest eventually led him to move from the classroom to the laboratory as he directed the global mission engagement of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, assisting that organization to adapt its global engagement to the unique challenges of the 21st century. He has served as pastor and interim pastor of a number of congregations in Kentucky, Alabama, and Georgia, and as a frequent lecturer on college and university campuses and at conferences across the nation that focus on ministry and mission in the 21st century. Dr. Nash is married with two grown children. He enjoys grilling and eating his way through every Asian restaurant in Atlanta. He runs about 15 miles a week, and he has a dog named Nemo and two cats, Mama Kitty and Agamemnon. Please welcome Reverend Dr. Robert Nash, Jr. All right, so we are back round two. One of the things I wanted to say is that at McAfee School of Theology, they are so considerate of of all little details. And thank you, Nathan, for this. Greg, for allowing this as well. But uh, if you will look over, you have pint glasses with two brands on there. It is McAfee School of Theology at Mercer and Brew Theology. But you also have a coffee mug. And if you look at the logo, you'll see a tea kettle. And that tea kettle is our other logo for those who uh, are not into alcohol for a variety of reasons. In fact, we do have people that meet at the pubs that don't drink. They either drink kombucha, don't like alcohol, or have religious convictions about that. So we have uh, a chapter for those who want to do just coffee and tea. So there's that. If you're interested in that, then hit us up. So thank you guys for that. We do it all. We do. Uh, and people keep asking me, when is the weed chapter coming? Oh. <laughs> you gotta move back to Denver. I, I don't live in Colorado anymore, so I can't speak for those guys. Somebody else can start that one. <laughs> Our second guest is the Reverend Dr. Robert N. Nash Jr. He is back at it again. We were together two years ago, and I got to say, Rob, uh, first off, you never sent me a message about your favorite Asian restaurants in town, so you have have one more shot at it, or else I'm not coming back to Atlanta. We Uh, can do it. But two... I'm uh, breaking Otis in with some of those restaurants. So. Uh, two is your, your book, and we'll refer to this book a little bit at the beginning. It's Moving the Equator, the Families of the Earth, and the Mission of the Church. That's what we talked about last time. And I have referred to that book with many colleagues and friends and pastors and just random people online, Thank which you. is not always the best thing when you do random people online. <laughs> uh, but it is a, it's a phenomenal book if you've not purchased it. 
I'm sure you can find it online. This is, again, Moving the Equator, the Families of the Earth, and the Mission of the Church. So tonight, as we talk about community development and preaching, we're going to have that trajectory, and we're going we're gonna to piggyback off that book a little bit just to start. So for those who haven't read it or don't know online what I'm talking about, the thesis is, and I'm going to quote this, God's purpose and intention from the beginning has been a diverse world that shapes our understanding of God from multiple perspectives. And this is all about Abraham. So it's, it is that, uh, that synergistic blessing the world, being blessed by the world back and forth. And we talked about that. You can go back on that podcast and listen to that or read the book. Uh, and, and then you stated this in an interview you had with Holly Bean. You said, I'm a better follower of Jesus because of the witness of my friends of other faiths and cultures. And I understand far more about God because I have been blessed by them. So we're going to start personal with you tonight, if you don't mind. Tell us how you have been blessed by other people of different faiths. How has that deepened your understanding of God? And I know you are a storyteller. You probably got countless stories. Uh, but whatever, first I'll, thing I'll watch it. First thing that comes to mind. Yeah, absolutely. So it started when I was a, a boy, and my father was a church planter in the Philippines on a predominantly Muslim island, the island of Mindanao. And he and I would go and visit a village, completely Muslim. And he would sit with the chieftain. And he would ask the chieftain if he could have the gift of a plot of land for a church. And without fail, time after time, village after village, the Muslim chieftain in that village gave the gift of land for the church. Now think about that for just a moment. Fast forward a number of years uh, when I was teaching at Shorter College in Rome, Georgia. Uh, I, uh, actually, a, a, an imam befriended me. And he, uh, he and I developed a great relationship. And then 9-11 happened. And at 9-11, the pastors in town decided to have a prayer forum. They actually had it at the Roman Forum uh, in Rome, Georgia. And so this imam asked if he could participate in the prayer. And the pastors were uncomfortable with it. But I kind of found myself, because the, the, mosque, the members of the mosque were late, escorting them in to this suddenly quiet crowd in Rome, Georgia, of probably a thousand people so they could come and be part of the prayer service after 9-11. Uh, so everything I've experienced from my Muslim friends runs absolutely counter to what you and I might assume would be their response to people who were followers of Jesus. Yeah. Thank you. So one of your um, courses at McAfee School of Theology is called Mission, Methodology, and Practice. And it focuses on community development and especially around the work of what you call social entrepreneurship and asset-based community development and the idea of the new parish. So do you think you could give kind of a brief description of that course and why you think it's important for seminary students and future pastors of today? 
Absolutely. Listen up, pastors. You need this course. Yeah. Yeah, I think Dr. Moss addressed this in some ways. Uh, we live in a day in which nobody's going to hand you a program about what you ought to do in a community. Nobody. And they shouldn't. Because you and I have got to have the imagination and the ability to pay attention to what God is doing in our communities to listen. Alan Roxborough calls it to be detectives of divinity and listen for what God is doing. And so with the course, what I'm hoping students will do is help churches to be socially entrepreneurial in their communities, help congregations to think of themselves not as the center of the community, which obviously they're not anymore. I mean, one of my constant lines uh, is, it's not about the church stupid. <laughs> it is not about the church. It is about the community. It's about the neighborhood. It's always been about the community and about the neighborhood for God. It's never been about the church. And until we sort of realize that as ministers, uh, we're going to absolutely fail at what God expects us to do in this, in this age. So you're, you're touching on something here that we've all dealt with, at least if we lived in the Western world, specifically in the South. And that is the separation of the sacred, right, and the secular, the holy spaces and the, and the profane spaces. And so you're trying to get people to sort of have a different mentality, framework, understanding of this. Is, is so question, is there really, is there such a separation? How do we, how do you help people understand the sacred and the profane? Um, and if there's not a separation, why, why not? Because this, this is a difficult hurdle for a lot of people. Uh, it really is a false dichotomy. Uh, we know from the very beginning, God created the world as good. And that context in Genesis 1 is the first context. It's a context in which God celebrates what God's done. And then God sort of rests and steps back to see what will happen, sort of modeling for us what we ought to do in our own contexts, our own cultural realities that we inhabit. Uh, it's interesting to me that you have the word text in both text and context. Mm -hmm. And we spend all this time, at, well, I'll, I'll say it, the seminary I went to, which sounded like yours, right? Uh, we, we, we wound up focusing all our attention on the text of, of Scripture and trying to figure out what the text said. And what we weren't taught to do was to pay attention to the context in, that we inhabited and to try to discern what God was doing in that context. I kind of become very Buddhist at this point, right? So every, we're different people than we were when we walked in an hour and a half ago or whatever it was. So much has changed. What God was doing when we walked in this room is no longer what God is doing now. 
God's doing something different now because this has not been static. This has been dynamic, right? You and I have been talking to each other. I picked up on something in you that I didn't know. Uh, and that thing was a divine thing that God was revealing to me. You picked up on something from me that you didn't know. And so suddenly we are living in this beautiful moment that God has made. And instead of always sort of filling it up with words, we need to step back and listen to what it is saying to us uh, and where it is calling us. So rather than, I mean, my whole thing is sort of, I, I believe, and this sounds heretical, you all have heard it from me before, text is no more sacred than context. Absolutely not. God made text. God made context. God is going to speak to us out of our context. And then we've got to figure out, I guess we'll go to preaching here. We've got to figure out as preachers how we weave this together, how we take text and context and weave it together. And sometimes you better put context over text because over time the text has become captive to the context and if you allow an old context to continue to shape it then you're no longer hearing the text mm. and then to test it you've got to put text over context and do that continual sort of weaving back and forth of the two yeah that makes me think so i don't know some any mdiv students in the room yeah. okay so i remember oh, yeah going into um that my that first degree before i had my degree in theology and taking those very first like biblical study classes and it was just like blowing my mind and changing everything that i knew about the bible and about christianity and the history and i was a pastor's kid so i was surrounded and i did bible quizzing so i was just surrounded by scripture 24 7 but then when i got into the academic setting it was like a whole different ball game and the scripture became a completely different thing to me so how do how do pastors who have people in their congregation who are not going to seminary who are what well, you you know lay people that deserve to learn the things that we learn in seminary that don't have the capacity to sit down and to you know pay a lot of money to go to school to study these things how do you see um, preachers doing that and bringing that kind of level of education teaching the context versus the text in from the pulpit do you see it as a challenge yeah, what does it look like it is it is really a challenge and i we talk about community development the first community you must develop is your congregation i will tell you and i'm going to speak as a white male pastor and simply say that most congregations that I go into are not safe spaces. They are not safe spaces. They were not safe spaces for my children. And I'll tell you why, neither one of them go to church. And they don't go to church because of the tapes they heard playing in church. 
They don't go to church. My, my daughter doesn't go to church. She never had a woman who was a youth minister. She never had a woman who was a pastor. And she basically said, to hell with that. So if we, it is not about just working towards someday when you can call a woman to be a pastor, right? Mm -hmm. It is about setting the foundation with a congregation so that somehow they quit hearing in their minds the awful tapes that are playing in their heads mm. that cause them to really through no fault of their own make church an unsafe space. Mm. White churches are an unsafe space for persons of color. Many congregations are unsafe spaces for LGBTQ people because, well, because basically we've done a very poor job of nurturing the church in its understanding of who God is, what scripture says, and we could kind of go on and on with it. So the problem, I think, for me is not how do we as pastors help our congregations to understand the stuff that we understand. The question for us is how do we undo all the terrible learning that we did in church that causes us to regurgitate the stuff that makes church unsafe mm. for people. Yeah. Uh, and that requires reprogramming of our own minds and our own understandings. Mm. I yeah. could go on and on with that. Yeah. No, and I, I'll Great. shut up. <laughs> Rob, I, I, I get it, and I understand that because I think this deals with that unconscious bias, which it takes a friend, as we talked about earlier, or a community speaking into your life in order to understand that. And, I mean, I recently, we, so we had just moved, and, and I have two young girls, nine-year-old and a five-year-old, and I said, I will not go to a church or belong to a church that is not going to affirm two groups of people because I know at that point what that means. And it's going to be, do women, can they, can they do all the things here? And can, can people of the LGBT spectrum do all things here? And so I, there's like a lot of great churches in our community with amazing people and friends that go there. And it's going to get awkward when they get older because they're going to want to go there probably because they're like, hey, this is the cool church down here. The cool churches always have the better programs. But a lot of times, like you're saying, they're not safe spaces. So I, I, I hate to say that. I just was like, I don't, we can't do that. You know, I feel bad. I always had this apologetic thing. It's a Southern deal that I've, I've inherited, maybe a Texan thing. I'm sorry we can't go there, but maybe I should stop saying I'm sorry we can't go there. It's, I don't, you know, I don't want you to have to deal with the stuff that, that we've been dealing with our whole lives. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. I don't want my daughters to ever think that they can never be, can, cannot do all things, you know. And um, anyway, so I appreciate that. That makes me feel better. It makes me sleep better at night, too. So <laughs> thanks, well, Rob. If I could add <laughs> yeah. one thing, even... When you are doing the very best that you can do to help a church become a safe space, you will be stunned when suddenly you discover it, is, it has become unsafe. And I'll give you an example. So our church in Canton, Georgia, entered into a relationship with a black congregation down the road from us about two miles away. 
We did the pulpit swap thing, choir swap, all that, and we decided to take it to the next stage. So let's do a mission project together. So we invited them to our space. Unbeknownst to me, a member of the congregation decided, what a great idea. Let's also invite police and firemen to lunch who are on duty who are on duty at the time so i'm sitting we've welcomed our black brothers and sisters and suddenly i look up and about 12 policemen with their guns and firemen are entering the space and the congregations celebrated this in the aftermath and this is kind of what I mean about the re-education then you have the hard job as the pastor of going around and saying yeah it wasn't all that great it really now let's think about why and you start the process of trying to re-educate about it and our our black brothers and sisters were gracious and they went through it and, uh, but it was such a, I'm sorry. Yeah, talking, that's right. Exactly. All right, let's, uh, let's move on and talk about phenomenology as that's one of your favorite words. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and as it relates to preaching and community development. So what do you mean by it first off? And second, what do you mean by it and how it relates to the work that followers of Jesus are seeking to do in their communities? Yeah, so my great example for phenomenology are the sailors in Jonah. You know, Jonah's a terrible prophet. Terrible <laughs> prophet. The prophets in Jonah are the sailors on the boat. And here's why they're the prophets. They're the prophets because when everybody's in trouble on the boat and they've tried to figure out what the problem is, they haul the captain goes and gets Jonah and brings him up on the, on the top of the, the deck of the boat. And the sailors have this wonderful conversation with it. I say wonderful. It's an awful conversation because they're, they're about to die. And what they say is, who are you? Where are you from? Who is your God? Why are we in this mess? That's phenomenology. That is allowing the person to speak to you because you're in trouble. You think you're in trouble, right? So you, you want the person to speak to you about who they are. You don't want to speak to them about who they are, which is how we generally approach it, right? You want them to speak to you. And so phenomenology, it's allowing whatever reality is in front of you to speak to you. Mm -hmm. You just shut up and ask questions. And you ask that reality about itself. Mm -hmm. And you experience it. So, for example, when we get beyond COVID and we do site visits again, we go to a sacred space of another religion and we allow that experience to be our first encounter instead of me 
sitting up in class and telling you what Muslims believe. Let's just go sit. Because when you just sit in the back of a mosque as a Christian and you look down at these people prostrated on the floor, what's the first thing you think? Off. What is wrong with me? I don't do this. Yes. They are on their knees before God. And you go back and you say, I need to think again about what it means to pray to God. Um, and there's a great story about Muhammad, peace be upon him, who was taken by the angel Gabriel over to Jerusalem. And he's over in Jerusalem with Abraham and Elijah, almost like the Mount of Transfiguration or something. And Gabriel takes Muhammad up to the uh, highest level of heaven. And he comes back down, and I think it's Abraham who says, well, what did God say? And Muhammad says, well, he told us to pray 50 times a day. And Abraham says, that's too much. Go back up and talk to God again and come down. So he goes up, comes down, and I don't remember the exact number, but it's something like, it's 25 times a day. And Abraham says, that's too much. Go back up there. Muhammad goes back up. He comes back down. Abraham says, what did he say? And Abraham, uh, Muhammad says, he said, pray five times a day. Abraham says, that's too much. Muhammad says, I'm not going back up there and embarrass myself. We're going to pray five <laughs> times a day. That's a great story about prayer yeah. and about this uh, effort to do as much as we can do as human beings mm. to pray to God. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, phenomenology is listening to the context, listening to Scripture, and allowing it to speak to us instead of us speaking to it. It, it sounds like to me a little bit of, of midrash, those who are familiar or not familiar. Uh, are, is that something that's influenced you in your work throughout the years, is Jewish midrash? Because when you say that, I, I'm thinking back to all these Jewish theologians yeah, and professors I've talked to. Absolutely. So, so the, you have the, hadith with the Christian world needs more midrash. The Christian world does need more midrash. Yes. Absolutely. We need, well, we need to see the multiple interpretations that, uh, I mean, we're too quick, I think, in at least evangelical, I'll speak from my traditions, we're too quick in evangelicalism to shut it down because we haven't been nurtured in a context that says, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this and Rabbi so-and-so said that. And uh, so we know there is disagreement and ambiguity mm. in the text. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we're already close to time to do some Q&As. So um, do you have a closing question maybe before we hop into those? Oh, I get one more. How about you? You, get the, you get the last one. Oh, no. <laughs> what do you think that um, the biggest challenges that are facing um, preachers and parishioners in this world that is continually changing all the time? There are a lot of ways that we like to and desire to cling to what we know and what makes us comfortable, like 
um, analog church in a world that's becoming increasingly digital. How do you think that we can take this understanding of learning from from our kind of global relationships, our interreligious relationships, and how can we not just, you know, build up the church, but also build up those relationships together because all of humanity are all children of God? Let's admit we have a deficient theology of otherness and difference. Let's confess the sin. Then let's model as ministers how to engage that otherness and difference for our folks who sometimes don't really know how to do it. I mean, there are all sorts of ways to do that, but, I, you know, I think you develop a relationship with an imam in town, you take a couple of parishioners with you to have the conversation, to hear what the imam has to say. And you model crossing over boundaries so that you become almost a guide. I mean, I think that, I mean, we're taking students to Morocco to have dialogue with a Muslim university uh, in Morocco. Uh, we're going to do all sorts of work with immigrants there. But the point is, we're engaging otherness and difference and helping future ministers or even current ministers now toward feeling comfortable in spaces other than their own. Mm. Yeah. And so I think all that we can do to model that kind of engagement and embrace yeah. will start to break down some of the, some of the yeah. fear. And something that I think about a lot in what I do and with brew theology is that it's not just that you are coming in to like hear from another person, but having a willingness to learn from and be changed by that other person. Because I think especially like as as Christians and coming from maybe more an evangelical context where it's about conversion and that's like the goal like I have to turn these people into people like me um, but what we do is we end up not being willing to listen to the other person it creates this um, this like difference in kind of power levels too and so when I do brew theology in Tallahassee I say nobody's here to get the last word nobody's here to convert anybody we're just here to meet each other at this equal table and to learn from one another and so I encourage people to learn from and to gain things from other folks and that creates authenticity, which we talked about earlier, because how I wouldn't want to be authentic and vulnerable with a person if I knew the whole time in the back of their head they were just waiting to convert me. I wouldn't be interested in that. And I don't think that's I don't think that's the future of the church or what it should be. And I don't think that's what these what any of this stuff is about. I think it's about meeting people where they're at and listening to them and being willing to be transformed by them. What percentage of God do we think we get? <laughs> yes. By our own scriptures, we don't know a thing. And if we're, you know, it's a trap, people. You're going to go tell somebody else what they ought to think about Almighty God. Yeah. And not walk away from the experience wondering what they might tell you about God. Mm -hmm. Because neither one of you really knows anything about God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. 
Should we ask okay. some questions? Yeah, we're going to ask some questions here. It is a dialogue, not a that monologue. Thank you, Rob. Thanks. Wonderful. Hey, Rob, uh, just before we do, what are you working on right now that you're like, you got to read this, or this is what I'm doing that you're going to read next year? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> was, that, was that a loaded question? I'm sorry. What I'm working on right now is... The history of Baptist engagement with other faiths. A short book on throughout throughout all of Baptist history. What have we done in terms of interfaith engagement? That's yeah. That's good. Short book. Any questions? Uh, Heather. Hey, so I think a lot of us, whether we're ministers or working in nonprofit contexts or students, we're in the midst of this great transition and change, whether it's from church or otherwise. And so the great resignation, you know, all these changes that are happening, how would you suggest we prepare ourselves for that otherness, for that change as we interact as ministers for our congregation, but also just as ourselves? How can we prepare ourselves for those kinds of changes to our communities and congregations? Yeah, well, and I know how old you are roughly. Um, So I will say that because you're basically my kid's age, I think, You all give me great hope, really. Uh, It's interesting. I grew up on a predominantly Muslim island in the Philippines, homeschooled by my mother. My children went to Elm Street Elementary School in Rome, Georgia. Their education was much more diverse than mine because they went to school with Muslim children. They went to school with black children, they learn to negotiate all of this. And so there is deep down in you and your generation, the fire and the passion to do this. When I was, well, I still am, I guess, taking students on these study abroad experiences, it occurred to me that the students were better traveled than the faculty because the faculty had grown up in an era in which you didn't go on a mission trip to Ecuador. You didn't do a study abroad program in college. So we started a program at Shorter College in Rome to take the faculty on international engagements because they had never done it. Uh, And so, I mean, you really, there is this powerful hope that I see in folks who, who have grown up after the Immigration Act of 1965 had sort of taken effect and we were engaging otherness and difference on a daily basis. Uh, you've got, what I would say to you is, thank God you got something to work with. You got something to work with. All you have to do is massage it. Uh, most people my generation, they didn't have anything to work with. 
The 70 and 80 year olds in my church had nothing to work with. The churches were segregated. The, uh, their education was in a white school system or a black school. They had nothing to work with. You've got something to work with that I think puts you in a pretty significant place. But you've got a mis- you've got a misogyny, and 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 I think you all can be midwives for the birth of something radical and different and and new. And one more comment about that. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned the brew theology gathering here is something that's new and different. Hear me and hear me carefully. No powerful revolution in the history of the church has ever come from within the church. Never. Monasticism outside the church. The Reformation outside the church. Revivalism, believe it or not. They didn't want those revivalists preaching in the church. Wesley and all those people went to, the, went to the cemeteries and they preached there. The missionary movement didn't come from within the church. It came from outside the church because the church really did, thought you left it in the hands of God to do it. And folks said, no, we need to have some human agency in this thing. So nothing significant in terms of revolution in the church has ever come from within the church. Nothing there. I usually have a many words. I got no words. So we we need another Maybe, question. Yeah, another question. Maybe one more. Do we have time for at least one more? I think we got. A, yeah, we've got about what nine minutes or so. Yeah. Ten minutes. Daniel. One in the back. So if. You just said no significant movement. Okay, that was, I was a well, little... Well, it comes from within the church. It's too late. It's well, too my late question now. is, for those that are in the church now, how do we contribute and keep our, our hand, not just on the pulse of what's happening outside the church, but be a significant part of the new movements that are happening? How do, we, how do people who are within the church, working within the church now negotiate that and contribute to that well i mean the reality is the church has always been right uh it it has always existed so i'm not worried about the church but what we do have to be open to is the emergence of new forms of church because church will not look in the future like it even looks i mean when we say church we mean the 19th century frontier church which only existed uh, for the last couple of hundred years so the church is always going to be what do we do with if we're working in traditional congregations i think we have a ministry uh, we are in the middle. We are holding our hands out to those who have been so much a part of that traditional church. And we're saying to them, it is going to be okay. God is going to be with the church. 
And then we're saying to folks on who are sort of outside the church working, we're saying to them, we want to get this thing to you and let you do with it what God wants to do with it. But let's try to hang together through all of this and let God use all of us to accomplish what God wants to accomplish down the road. It's a very unpleasant place to be. Uh, it's a very uh, disconcerting place to be. It's also a very exciting place to be because we're kind of in on the ground floor of, of how God is going to do something new. Uh, and you only get that privilege about every 500 years. And congratulations. <laughs> you are all here for it. Yeah. It's a great thing. That was great. I feel like that was um, Phyllis, Phyllis Tickle who was talking about every 500 years. Yeah. You know her? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Great emergence. Right. So, Rob, this really isn't fair for me to ask you this. Oh, no. Because we've talked about it outside of the podcast. But you, you talked about phenomenology. And the phenomenological question is, what is it like to, right, tell me your experience. To a room full of ministers, what's at stake if they ask that question? What's at stake if, if, the, if the paradigm shifts? And instead of us telling other people what, what their experience is like, what if we begin by acknowledging theirs? Yeah. What's that going to do for us? Well, we receive a blessing. That's what it does for us. In the first. We receive a blessing. Uh, we have this sense that we're the blessing to the world. We've a story to tell to the nations. I have preached my heart out about how we ought to be open to the perspective of others, only to have the congregation stand and sing, we've a story to tell to the nations because I'm the missions guy who's there. Yeah, we open ourselves up to receive a blessing that we have been cut off from because of the way in which we've understood our purpose and our calling in the world. So to say, what is it like? And listen and wait for the response is to listen and wait for a blessing from others. Mm. Thank you, Rob, for blessing us tonight, for everybody for blessing one another. Keep, uh, keep the conversations flowing, uh, keep the text and the context a-brewing, and last thing, hashtag These Bears Preach. All right, if you like this, share it on the interwebs, and we're at Brew Theology, you can find yeah. us there, and we're also at McAfee School of Theology as well. Peace. Yeah. Yeah. Woo.